And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus and I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. You already know. You already know. We're giving the people what they want. In fact, today we're feeding the people. I think you can call Steve and I Mr. and Mr. Thanksgiving because everyone's going to eat today. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Hyping it up. Hyping it up. I love the, the pre podcast hype because that means we have to live up to that. We always so, deliver, though. You always get very pessimistic. Oh, shoot. I don't know. If we, and then, boom, we deliver. Three course meal you know. coming with dessert. We're giving you what you want. <laughs> and before we get into that meal, just a reminder of our sponsor, ourselves. We have decided to have the scholar. Academy of Scholarship program that John and I produce as the sponsor. Why? Because it is our little child, our baby. It is everything that we've known and discovered and read over the past, gosh, I don't know, 20 years of our our coaching running lives. And it's distilled into this wonderful, long... um, repository of everything training and imaginable i think you know i'm gonna go be so bold as to call it the number one catalog of endurance uh running history training science uh examples and commentary that is currently available out there um just because as steve said it's everything it's everything we've read everything we've seen and experienced everything we've done everyone we've worked with uh and steve and i you know we're talking offline it's not even we're it's just the tip of the iceberg of what's available right now. Like we're just starting to scratch the surface because we're going through our old files and finding gems of things that we had just kind of in our closets that we didn't even know <laughs> existed because again, you know, it's just about passing, you know, passing the baton to the next generation or, you know, educating the current generation about best practices or practices that might not be best practices currently that we used to think were very helpful. So it's super insightful. And if you're looking for a way to really upgrade and level up uh, your understanding of coaching, uh, distance running, and training, and how that mixture all fits together to optimize it for the athletes or teams you work with, give it a shot. Because I think we're on a special, Steve, but not for very much longer. That's right. A special till the end of this month. It is a special during COVID, 50% off. Go to the show notes on the Science of Running. You'll see a link with a coupon code. Click that, 50% off. Again, ends at the end of this month. So, you know, if you're listening, take a look. And, you know, it it really is so much content, so much that I was going through it this weekend, and we realized we need to figure out a uh, almost library system of ordering it, which is our project right now, because there is literally, you scroll for like 10 minutes, just getting down to the bottom of, of all of the lists. So, check that out. And without further ado, we will go into this week's podcast, which is titled the myth of losing speed oh man this is one of my favorite topics john i love it because it gets people so heated because you know the knock on distance running 
is like, oh, you can't you can't go run because you're gonna lose speed, right? If you do long stuff, you're gonna lose speed. You're you're gonna get slower. You're gonna get slower. And this was always, you know, even back when I was in high school, we had like 400, 800 guys who some of the coaches would be like, oh no, you're not running cross country because cross country will make you slow. And there's a degree of truth in that, but there's also a misunderstanding. And I'm just going to lay it out from the front. I think that if you are losing speed, we're going to talk from middle distance up. Okay. I'm not talking your 60 meter dash guy. Let's get that out of the way. I'm not talking about the 60. Um, although I will note that back in the day, Carl Lewis used to go on, used to go on three mile runs during his base phase. <laughs> so, I mean, he didn't lose speed, but, you know, that's the topic for another discussion. Not talking about 60-meter sprints, but from middle distance up, if your athletes are losing speed, it is your fault. Your training is is wrong. You're doing it wrong. It is not the fault of necessarily of the easy runs, the tempos, or whatever have you. It is that you, as a coach, didn't program enough pure speed work to counteract or compensate for the volume of aerobic work you're doing. And I think it's important right now to define, you know, specifically what Steve and I mean by speed and endurance. And we've spent several podcasts like talking about that uh, relationship and also the differences. And we've spent many, um, uh, you know, uh, time and energy at, uh, coaching conferences, um, on presentations and at clinics, and also, too, in what we've written on the um, uh, Academy of Scholarship about speed. But I think, Steve, you know, why don't you take the lead here and how do you think about speed and define it in the middle distance distance context and also aerobic or endurance and define that when you're thinking about and writing training and also about developing those qualities in athletes you're working with. Sure. So here's how I I look at it. If we have pure sprinting, okay, pure acceleration at the very far end of, let's say, the left side of the spectrum, and then we go all the way on the line and go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, you have very slow jogging, okay? There are a variety of combinations of speed and endurance in between those things, Okay, between jogging and pure off, let's say a 30 meter XL. And we could get we can delineate them in a number of different ways, but that's how I, I tend to think of things as this long spectrum instead of these clear cut divisions. So if I look at if I say, okay, speed, what is it? Well, pure speed to me for from a distance standpoint is like acceleration doesn't really matter too much in our sport of running it you know, 800 mile, the pure acceleration doesn't matter too much. It serves a purpose, but there's going to be a lot of variation in that. So I look at pure speed as running 60 meters to 100 meters, somewhere in that that range, right? It's what can you run at the top end of your, your, your speed? Like, where do you hit top end? Um, we lengthen out to speed endurance or whatever you want to call it after that. But again, 
like it serves a role and it serves a purpose and it should be included in training, especially for uh, endurance athletes. But it kind of mixes in with this speed, this pure speed and the speed endurance when you're looking at um, distance runners or middle distance runners. So I tend to think of it as, okay, if I'm working on pure speed, then I'm sprinting for maybe six to 10, 12 seconds. Um, once I get beyond that, I'm adding more and more speed endurance component while still touching a, a bit on top end speed. I kind of throw it a, a little bit all in there together. Um, but my kind of approach is we need to develop pure speed to counteract pure endurance. And then as we go down the spectrum, we need to develop speed endurance to develop or lengthen out that pure speed but also that serves to counteract maybe some of the not just pure endurance but more kind of high-end aerobic work Mm -hmm. where you're looking at tempos and stuff like that the best way i can describe it is i see it as the seesaw that we're trying to balance depending on the individual and the event they're training and if we go too far without balancing on the other side then yes we'll mess up one component but that's why we try to balance it out and i think this is where a lot of the um, dialogue and also argumentation happens with say sprint coaches or speed focused coaches and maybe endurance minded coaches um, about what is speed because Fundamentally, I think we're bringing to the table different definitions and understanding of speed, as Steve eloquently described there. You know, uh, we had on Tony Holler uh, last summer on the podcast, you know, and his Feed the Cats concept really took off. And, you know, it kind of of well-intending coaches kind of took it as that's all you need is uh, uh, speed. And so I'm going to just run a cross-country program or a, a mile, two-mile program based off of the Feed the Cats philosophy. I think, you know, as I've said time and time again, uh, it's understanding what Tony's really getting at. Uh, first and foremost is making practice fun for the high school demographic. And that's really the core of his Feed the Cats message. He's like, why would we make something – uh, you know, drudgery sport when the idea, the concept of it in that academic setting for the young adolescent is about teaching life skills and making it a collaborative team effort, but also giving them a sense of ownership and confidence in what their body can do. So why would we go into practices and wear and tear you down if what you're doing is in nature uh, acceleration or a quick stop and start type uh, athletic endeavor like football, right? And so that's really the demons he's trying to slay. Um, To extrapolate that and apply it to distance running, even I'm going to say that's a a tough sell because, again, there's fundamentals in distance running that we just, we can't, are non-negotiable and non-escapable in order to have competency and improvement, right? And this is the hard part about all this stuff is, Things happen the way they do because of a host of like complex interacting processes, right? And to try to pull on and pull out one from the mix and isolate it is really misleading. And that's the hard part. As much as we want to think about it as layered, it's actually a mixture, right? So I often use baking the cake analogy. You need a certain proportion 
depending on what type of cake you're baking, of flour, eggs, sugar, butter, chocolate, vanilla, what have you, right? And then you lay, and then once that kind of foundation or fundamental has been baked, then you can layer on kind of like the more exciting things like frostings and sprinkles or you know, uh, fruit or whatever you want to kind of uh, uh, make it a little bit more exotic, right? But fundamentally, speed as the context of what we're talking about for the middle distance endurance athlete is not acceleration. So acceleration is starting from zero, getting from how long does it take you essentially to go from zero to max speed, right? And a lot of sprint coaches spend an enormous amount of time working on acceleration, acceleration development. And there is value to that, right? But acceleration is starts at static. Acceleration is essentially uh, acyclical because you're starting from scratch. And then you're trying to get into an accelerated state and create this cyclical environment, which is the running motion. And you're actually in acceleration. You're starting more on muscle and contractions of muscle, right? Muscle powers the acceleration um, of sprinting. So if you are a stop and start athlete, like football, soccer, basketball, um, or, and or starting from static like sprinting, that's an important uh, thing to work on. Endurance athletes are not. We most we live most of our time in the cyclical environment. We only excel when the gun goes off at the start of the race for a couple seconds. But we're not excelling to max speed, right? So that's why it kind of catches people off guard. We're excelling to what's called race pace, which is a, which is more early on a very sustainable um, t- cyclical tempo that we can then be able to maintain not solely, not necessarily powered ex- by muscle um, as the primary mode of locomotion, but also kind of the slings of the fascial system. And this is one thing I think when I talk about form and technique and what I've really dived deep into the last two years is understanding there's a different system at play and the fascial matrix is a very important system that was designed to propel us in cyclical environments like steady running. Um, And we have unfortunately not done enough homework or don't have enough education on that yet. It's still very fuzzy to us. So we put a lot of emphasis on the muscular system and the, and what powers the muscular engine and con- contractions and of uh, muscle. And we think that's the way the body moves. Now we have to always remember the body works with backups, right? The body is an amazing compensatory uh, organism because the whole point is thriving and survival. So you can lose an eye, you can lose a kidney, you know, and you can still chug along, right? You can lose a limb, you can still chug along um, to a certain degree. Like things are there and they regenerate. The liver regenerates if it is uh, to a certain point, right? That's the way the human body is designed because we need backups in the system. A lot of runners run currently in a very light or uh, acceleration model where there is a braking and a starting and then a stopping in kind of the flight phase, uh, transitioning to the ground contact or stance phase. That's another place in our time. But what we want to basically get to is no matter you're running form or technique, when you're running steadily or even doing variations of steadiness, tempos, fart lick, what have you, that's still cyclical. We're, we're not starting from static each time. And so what Steve and I are talking about when we talk about speed 
fundamentally in this category is more geared towards that speed endurance, right? The ability to go at a certain pace and endure it for a certain duration and or maybe make shifts in that. And this is where the balance of having a very robust aerobic capacity that allows you to be able to interpret the speed you're going at as non-stressful. So, you know, your metabolites and your metabolic system is not off the charts so that when and if you do need to uh, have a reserve or call upon your reserve or your ability to then quote unquote kick or surge in the middle of the race or towards the end of the race, you have that capacity. And this is where I think, Steve, the heart of this discussion, the myth of losing speed uh, really is rooted is many times we spend as endurance coaches or middle distance coaches so much time building that endurance and aerobic capacity. It comes at a neglect and a cost of developing any kind of neuromuscular capacity. Yeah. You know, I think it, I think it's pretty simple. It's like what you don't train, like. Atrophies. It just atrophies. It goes away. Like if yeah. you don't train it, it goes away. It it's the use it or lose like, it principle, right? <laughs> yeah. So like, I think a lot of the, like, don't get me wrong. Like if we do a lot of endurance work, if we do a lot of tempos, whatever, like, yes, it can have an effect on what we've just defined as speed hundred percent. But I think that effect is much less than if you just, don't do the actual speed stuff you need to do. <laughs> and that's the key. And, you know, um, and athletes I've worked with and been fortunate at both the college and professional level to work with some phenomenally fast middle distance runners. Um, and, and some who have run pretty decent volumes or run pretty well over cross country and all that stuff. And it's also always all one of my fears is like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, I remember we had this college guy who would split 46 in the 4x4 outdoors and 47s indoors, and he would anchor our 4x4 sometimes, and I'm just like, all right, like, I need him for cross country because we don't have a ton of scholarships and we don't have a ton of depth, and he's pretty good at cross country, so I need him for this, but he's also really good on the track and the 800 and the 4x4, uh, you know, I can screw this up pretty easily. But what ended up happening is like he would transition from running sub 32 10 Ks and cross to again, splitting 46, 47 on the four by four a couple months later, because while he was in cross training, he was still doing regular sprint work. And what I mean by regular sprint work is at the beginning, he would do again, six to eight seconds sprinting up a moderate hill. And then We'd have some 60-meter excels, some 80-meter excels, some 100-meter excels. And when I say excels, I just mean build up to top speed and maintain it, right? Over 60, 80, 100 meters. And those things would be included every once in a while during our, our cross-country training or sometimes at the beginning of a workout um, before we do a more cross-country type workout. Right, and, and where I, it should be. Like speed work is a neuromuscular emphasis in nature. It's more on the in the, the spectrum of speed and endurance, more neuromuscular focus. So speed work is best done because you get the best return on investment for it neuromuscularly when you're fresher, right? It's kind of like 
there's a podcast uh, interview that I did on Final Surge that talks about this exactly, um, where they asked me to go a little bit more in depth in this concept of where I essentially, you know, tweeted out uh, a little while, a couple, several months ago that if you're doing 200s after a tempo, you can't really call that pure speed, which is true. It's a different type of work. It has value, but you can't say we're doing pure speed work after we've done a six mile tempo and, and check that box off. It's actually, again, you, you're losing the nuance of what pure speed really is. Yeah. You're changing. I mean, the way I look at it is if you do pure speed work in a fatigue state, you're not going to be producing the force right. that you're could right and yeah and, and then you lose the neuromuscular enhancement yeah. and coordination capacity that you could so that doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose it just means it doesn't fulfill the purpose of if here's how i like to keep it keep it simple if your goal is to recruit and utilize as much muscle fast twitch fibers as you can to produce as much force then you want to do that fresh. 100%. Right. Yes, agree. If 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 you do that same exercise, let's say a couple, you know, 80 meter sprints after a workout, you're only going to get and I'm making up numbers here, but you you might only activate 85% of that that muscle, right? of those fast twitch fibers that you might recruit. You might only produce 85-90% force. Again, making up numbers here. But the the point is you're dropping it down a little bit. And all that means is that is giving you a different stimulus. It's a stimulus of okay, how do we produce a high level of force but not near our maximum under some sort of fatigue conditions, which is can be like, again, you have to worry about, like, injury considerations and stuff like that. So, keep that in mind. But that can be a useful stimulus. But I would argue that it's a useful stimulus only after you've developed the capacity and the coordination to recruit everything you need to produce a high level of force in a fresh state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is where order operations matters a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, arguments back and forth, chatter about it. But you, as a coach, you really have to understand the athlete you have in front of you. What's their limiting factor? Or as they say in the military, limfac. Like why, what's their limiting factor to being competitive in the environment they want to be competitive in? And what do I need to do to give them enough tools, not every tool, but enough tools um, by, by balancing all the other um, physical attributes that they need from where they're at to where they could go to help them um, be able to be competitive in that arena on the day or in the period that uh, is in front of them. Yeah. You know, I like the tools in your toolbox and that's how I like, you've got to continually sharpen those tools or else they become dull and useless. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's, that's what we're doing when we say the myth of losing speed like going going and running long stuff, going and running tempos, that only very slightly dulls your tools, your speed tool, very slightly. But what dulls it the most is if you just let them sit 
for months on end and not be used and not be sharpened. That's the primary cause, especially from a middle and long distance standpoint of doling your, your speed tool. And John and I's recommendation, again, keeping with this simple analogy is pretty straightforward is if you have a really sharp knife, you don't want it to sit there all the time and, and eventually dole out or become rust or whatever. Like we've got to keep it in check. We've got to periodically pull it out of the cabinet, right? Sharpen it, make sure it's still usable. Remind, you know, remind ourselves how to utilize it, sharpen the blade, and then you can put it back in the drawer for, until the next week, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's that's how I think when you're looking at maintaining a quality and not building it, that's how you have to look at it. And for every athlete, it's going to be different. You know, a marathoner who is very much slow twitch might have a, a much, you know, smaller knife that is easier to maintain, right? Mm-hmm. But we still have to pull it out and maintain it. An 800 runner who can split 45 in the four by four, like he might have a, a, a machete. I don't know. Whatever. Pick your knife. A Bowie knife. Man, that thing is going to take a lot more to maintain than my, you know, simple kitchen steak knife. And I think that's how you have to look at it. Right. And then this is where we talk about fast twitch and slow twitch. You know, I always kind of go back to the neuromuscular model of uh, motor unit recruitment, right? So we have low threshold motor units and high threshold motor units. So low threshold motor units. And what a threshold is, is the threshold is considered to be the level of stimulation required to trigger the smallest amount of um, contraction resulting from the excitation, right? And the contraction of the first few muscle fibers. That's what the threshold is. So low threshold is typically, uh, you know, uh, recruitment happens at low force, meaning, quote unquote, slow twitch, right? Running at a certain um, force, which... Most of the middle distance run or distance running is like if you're going slower, let's say, let's say, let's set the bar here at 60 seconds per quarter for men and say 70 seconds per quarter for women, you know, just a really general, general, uh, flag post that's low force relative on the scale. So it's going to primarily be low threshold units. But when you start to want to do things that have high threshold units or higher forces, that's where you need to then swing the pendulum and then recruit those high threshold motor units in high threshold situations. Like, you know, you can do that on the track with, you know, uh, accelerations to max velocity work, which is defined as, again, you don't want to decel. You don't want to decelerate. So that's going to be pretty much in kind of the ATP phosphate world, right? That's going to be just pure ATP. And you're going to just focus on eight seconds or less, right? Because when you start to creep over eight seconds, uh, certain acidosis and metabolite products start to uh, rear their head and those high threshold motor units become muted. And now we start to decel. So we're not teaching ourselves the pure high threshold motor unit recruitment and creating a more robust high threshold motor unit network. Um, But if you are a mixed athlete, say that 800 meter type or miler type, there's a blend here of fast twitch, slow twitch, or high 
force and low force threshold units. So therefore, you have to be able to call upon them at certain times. And the argument in favor of aerobic running, and you, Steve, you, you tell me if I'm wrong because you're the physiology marathon guru here in this uh, dichotomy, is the fact that aerobic running and aerobic capacity, that oxidative capacity uh, dampens the fatigue signaling if it's hyper-efficient because then the forces you're producing at main, you know, kind of upper spectrum, lower force environments make it so you feel fresher and less fatigue so that by the end of a race or in the crux of the race in the critical stages in the last quarter, you have that capacity because you're quote-unquote less fatigued because the ability to maintain that less force is um, less of a weight on you. You can then recruit higher threshold motor units to go what looks like faster and or kick. Am, am I any disagreeing with that, Steve? Any, any things you want to? You know, it's, I'm going to add a, a tidbit of physiology history yeah. is it's really interesting. One of the pioneers who discovered that like you can recruit um, fast twitch fibers at the end of, let's say a longer mm-hmm. race or a longer run was actually, actually Peter Snell. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Peter Snell did some work on looking at um, at uh, utilizing fast twitch fibers and their use of glycogen um, during endurance work. So just a tidbit of not only a was he a wonderful runner, but he also made some great impacts as a exercise physiologist that kind of backed up some of Lydiard's, um Lydiard's teaching, which is fascinating. Right. And I, and the hard part is this sounds really attractive to distance or aerobic oriented coaches and athletes to say, Oh, so if I just run a bunch of miles and then do speed work in a fatigue state, I'll recruit these high threshold motor units and that I can then do the thing I like the best, which is doing a lot of work first. And then I can do the thing I kind of like less, which is doing, um, fast work later and still get the benefit. And the answer is not necessarily because the type of high threshold motor units you're recruiting are those sneaky um, uh, type two ones, right? That can go, that can mirror any way depending on the current demand of the environment. So they can be low threshold or if necessary, they can flip and be higher threshold if all your other primary um, motor units, let's say, or muscle fibers have been exhausted. Again, the body always has reserves, right? So it's interesting because we can try to shape the direction that these type twos can um, become through some types of training. But the same token too, it's not necessarily the best practice, in my opinion, to exhaust an athlete, create a high level of exertion through long duration of running or tempos or what have you, and then try to trigger that response. It's better spent, in my opinion, doing that fresh and then going to your low threshold motor units, which are more populous in number and also can sustain longer, even in fatigue states. And this makes sense. So do your pure speed or high threshold work first, like you did in in that example in cross country, if you want to maximize pure speed and then do your tempo work afterwards, because the low threshold motor units you're working with and your aerobic capacity has the robustness and resiliency to be able to not be impacted that much by um, having that 
in that training day, that high speed or um, high threshold work done up front and first. So, yeah, and I think that's a a good point. And I think one thing that I'd add on to that is just so that we can get some clarity and um, in this, because I know it's been an argument I've I've had with sprint coaches, is that to me, when we're talking freshness, it's important to understand what that means for your athlete. So if I have, I don't know, a, a college distance runner who's used to running 80 miles a week, that means you can go on your two-mile warm-up run and do all that stuff and then do your sprints, right? It doesn't mean that it has to be after a sprint type warmup. Like, you you know, if you're going on a 12 mile run, then doing your sprints, are they fresh? No, right? (laughs) (laughs) But but like if you're doing a standard warmup or two miles or three miles or whatever it is that, that gets you ready, um, that's fine. That kind of low volume aerobic stuff for a, a very aerobic kid is not going to be a big deal. Now, if I took that same athlete and let's say it's a 400, 800 runner and I had him jog three miles, then he might be, again, depending on the athlete, then they might be in a slightly fatigued state, right? So it just, it just kind of varies. And, you know, with my college athletes, I do this all the time, right? We have this little hill that uh, we do hill sprints on a lot. It's a very short hill because there aren't any hills in Houston, but it works great for hill sprints. And with my my 5K, 10K type athletes, cross-country type, I tell them, go run three miles, we'll do some hill sprints, and then run three miles after. With my 800 athletes, I say, go run a mile, do some hill sprints, and then run two or three miles after, Right. Why? Because I'm shifting the volume around because I know that like for some of these 800 athletes, like if I have them do more on the front end, like it'll take away some of their speed and power um, from getting out of the hill. So again, it's, it's just kind of a, you know, it's knowing what you want to do, you know, with one, uh, with Mark English, who's an Olympian and 800 runner with his pure speed stuff. Like we always do it like right after a warmup. He'll do one mile, including in in workouts. So he'll do a one mile warm up. A lot of times he'll do, if we're combining it with something else, he'll do four, maybe four by 60 meter sprint six L's and then do, you know, three to four by five minutes at tempo with, with a minute break in between or whatever it is, our, our standard tempo workout, threshold workout, whatever you want to call it. But it's those four by sixties where I'm saying, okay, I need to maintain this during his high volume days. So you know what? You're going to get these sixties out of the way, get some good speed in, and then we'll worry about the conditioning stuff. So again, it's knowing, it's figuring out, okay, how do I balance this out? Like, what am I trying to accomplish? Um, and, and realizing that stacking things is okay, but how you stack them impacts the stimulus that you're getting. Yeah, and the key here is understanding, I think, exertion levels. As Steve pointed out, the exertion level for an athlete that has had several years of, you know, consistent 70, 80 mile weeks of running to go run 
and jog two miles for just a general physiological like warm up is super low. There's not there's no waste products being you know made there as long as that warm up is totally just a warm up run by feeling run at a very 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 light uh, exertion right. But if you have like that sprinter athlete or that um, new athlete who they don't have any context with that and you ask them to do that. Yeah. It's going to shoot them for the whole session. And this is the thing that we have to remember about training, right? And people is I, you know, that humans, we're just, we are supremely resilient creatures. That's why the training, you know, super compensation cycle works and like recovery, you know, almost seems to start right after the immediate shock has passed. And that's really what workouts are about. Any type of work is about creating a shock and allowing enough time to exist for a, a, to get recovered. And overtraining, as I, as I like to say a lot, is often uh, mislabeled because it's more under-recovered. And it becomes systemic because we think we have to put in a certain amount of work every day at a certain threshold in distance running world. And if you don't get the miles in every day, if I don't run 10 miles every day, something bad's going to happen. It's actually, if you don't aren't recovered from the shock or the stimulus that you applied physically, that's where the things start to air. And there's many road to roams on speed. If we understand that speed fundamentally is about like Steve and I have talked about high threshold motor unit recruitment, which means high force activities, then you can say, Oh, so speed means I can do plyometrics. Correct. Speed means I can do uh, certain very disciplined types of weightlifting because it applies high force. Correct. Speed means I can also do hill sprints or treadmill sprints, as you know, as made fa- as made popular recently by Mike Smith in NAU. Correct. Because it's high force application situations. Speed means I can throw med balls against a wall, or on the ground, or um, in the air. Correct. It's high threshold, high force creating situations. And the thing about all those high threshold creating situations is they have an indirect benefit to the athletes because again, primarily you're addressing the central nervous system and the expediency of which uh, the um, action potentials can travel down the spinal cord to activate the muscle, right? So this is why you have this big soup and you've people who have been following myself along for a long time have seen athletes I work with doing a lot of different work and it's like well why the because again these are ways to maintain that high force output on days where the running might be focused on more low threshold or aerobic type work so that they can then have that consistency so they don't have that atrophy that happens from neglect and so an example would be doing a very quick and but um, you know potent med ball session before a training run or recovery run or a long run and or before a tempo run that's another way to create high threshold motor units and train speed without actually having to run down the track or straight away or up a hill at a certain clip right so it's understanding like the the myth of all this is this kind of highly polarized lie in the sand it's either this or it's not that and if all the stuff, you know, that Steve and I had said throughout the podcast, you know, high force, thresh, or being fresh, uh, having good, uh, you know, aerobic capacity, which leads to quick uh, recovery, recoverability. 
you know, again, looking back at where a lot of distance coaches anchor their training history and philosophy is in Lydiard. And if you look at his sequence of training his athletes in a, a year-round basis, he created nice, neat blocks where the focus was one of those things, right? We have, as we've talked about many times here, the endurance phase, right? That lasted six months, 100-mile weeks at six-minute pace or faster. Then the bounding phase, which is plyometric, high force, getting the bodies and tissues prepared for the high force that's going to be applied to them when they then move from the bounding phase into the sprint phase or, you know, quote unquote training shape phase or sharpening phase. When again, they were doing hard to medium workouts six days a week in a row for three months (laughs) with one day of quote unquote recovery from that being a long run or a run, an aerobic run of two hours at however you felt. That's a lot of work. And in order to get the athletes prepared to handle those workloads, that's why that Lydia chose that path that he did. Now, the inverse, in a different pathway, someone who spent a lot of time with a really diverse portfolio of work, you know, uh, drills, general strength, med ball, weightlifting, lots of sprints uh, in the pool, swimming, um, you know, and anchored their aerobic ability once they decided to uh, hone that is the famously made example of Alan Webb, who was able to run 2740 for 10K, but then later on before and before run, you know, American records in the miles. But the thing I think we, we have to talk about, Steve, is the concept is Alan didn't have that range all the time. Every day he was training, he had certain, uh, he had, I mean, I'll let you explain the story because that's the big misconcept is Alan had 143, 800 meter range all the way up to 27, 10K, not concurrently is the key caveat that I think we should explore right now. hundred percent. Before we jump into that, I want to, I, I just pulled up one of Lydiard's original st- uh, schedules. I just want to throw a couple workouts out there. This is during the hill phase in addition to sprinting and bounding. Listen to this. Um, on Monday, they did some 400s, but they also did a 700 with a 30-meter sprint on command. Okay. Oh, nice. Tuesday, they did some 200s in addition to the hills plus 4 by 50 meters. Wednesday, in addition to the hills, they did 2 by 220, 2 by 100, 1 by 100, 2 by 50. Okay, you get it, you get on, right? And then during the final phase, his interval phase, I'd like to just point out. So you heard about a lot in there of like 4 by 50, 1 by 100, 2 by 50, right? So very short, 30 meter sprint. And then during his, again, this is training for uh, the mile. Um, during his peaking phase, like the week before the big race or the Olympic Games, three by 200 or 220 yards all out mm-hmm. full rest, mm-hmm. which is taking that speed and then turning it into speed endurance. Exactly, so yeah. we, we, we hear Lydiard, we think long, slow, we think, which has issues itself, but we think high volume, which is true. But Lydiard also knew again, like, Hey, I got to balance this out. I got to have 
an introduction to fast running, and then I've got to include some sprinting and prepare the body with hill, hills and bounding to sprint. And then I've got to include some like flat out 200 meters or 220 yard sprints for some speed endurance to top things off. So again, just, you know, pointing it out. Well, yeah, it's all the, in, go ahead, Steve. It, it's all in there. We just got to like, take the time to like, not just take, pieces of it and be like oh Lydiard was this no 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 yeah. Lydiard was a coach who did an amazing job of saying you know what i need this 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 and this and this and i'm going to figure out the balance and the ingredients for the athletes i work with it's not just about this one thing that i'm known for and that's i think the thing with a lot of coaches is we have to be hyper patient and no structural changes whether it's to physiology uh, whether it's to anatomy and or whether it's to neurology those structural changes take time and the shock or the signal is the stimulus. But, you know, I, I'm always uh, at first was surprised and now ready for when I work with a new athlete and I have them sprint for the first time, even something as benign as say uh, three times 30 meters um, on fly 30 meters with full walk back recovery, right? Most distance runners feel like it's a waste of their time. Uh, they're not getting the miles in. So how can that be helpful? And then, you know, promptly the next day I see them and go, how are you feeling? Go, I'm sore all over. Yeah. Because again, sprinting, developing max force and that max velocity sta uh, state demands full tissue recruitment because it takes everything you have, you know, for that short period of 30 meters, which is like, you know, four to five seconds um, to be able to maintain that velocity. And that's, again, if we don't do that regularly, it, it, it atrophies. And it, it, it is definitely, again, you, it's expressed in itself at the end of a race. And I always shake my head in, you know, shared pain or disappointment with an athlete and a coach that, you know, they're like, oh, they're, they're the most fit they've ever been. They were up at altitude. They've been doing all this work, you know, and they uh, did this impressive series of mile repeat workouts and tempo runs and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but where's the pure, pure speed as Steve and I have defined it as max velocity work. It, it doesn't exist. And then it always happens. Last 200 meters of a 5K, last 200 meters of a 10K or four meters of a 10K, the doors are blown off by a more uh, athlete who has a, a more balanced diet of training and has that high threshold motor unit recruitment ability in a semi-fatigue state. And again, we, we tend to just think it will take care of itself at the end if we just do all this endurance work up front. Again, you know, Steve and I are trying to say that's a myth. It, you know, you don't lose speed. It's you can't lose something you never develop. <laughs> so it's that's the core of this myth is it's, it's there's no losing going on. There's lack of development happening. And Steve and I are simpatico on this where it's like if you don't develop it, it's not just going to magically express itself in the 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 importance or the critical moment in the crucible of racing, because if you don't train it, you, you don't have it. That's, you know, if you don't train it, you don't have it. That's the key. And, uh, you know, going, going back to that Alan Webb story, you know, several years ago, he, he spoke to my team and, you know, one of the, the questions that came up was like, 
Allen, like you had this phenomenal range from 143 in the 800 all the way up to beating Dathan Ritzenhain in uh, 27, I don't know, 20, 2730 in the 10K, uh, which is phenomenal and almost unheard of, especially for a clean athlete. So, like, how do you have that range? And Allen made the astute point. He said, the thing people forget is I didn't have I, it wasn't like I was capable of running 143 in the 800 and 2730 in the 10K at the same time. It all depended on like what the point of the, the training was. He ran that 10K against Dathan because he came off of a massive endurance block of work and wanted to take advantage of it and show what he could do and see how much it paid off. And then later in the the track season year, like, he wasn't capable, you know, if you lined him up in the peak of, uh, let's see, the track season, he wouldn't have been capable of running that against Dathan and running that and and, um, beating him, for example. So, it's that, that idea there that I think that we have this idea of, Oh, I need to be able to run all my PRs at, at, at the same time, or I need to be in phenomenal endurance shape and phenomenal speed shape at the same time. You don't. It is okay to a degree if you are not as sharp training for a 10K, right? In the fall, then you will be in the sum, in the summer when you're ready for track season. That's normal. We, we kind of expect it, right? But we forget to make that connection that like, oh, you're right. I won't be, I won't maybe be able to run, let's say 49 in the quarter during cross country training, but I need to be close enough so that when I switch gears and go into track training, I can bring that maybe 50 point down to 49 or whatever have you in the hundred or 200 down. Right. And I think that is the key is you need to do enough to maintain while you're building something else so that when you switch and you're now building this, that it's in a position to grow and develop. And that's this nuance of back and forth. And and just the way I think of it too is, you know, if I'm a 1500 meter runner and let's say I'm peaking in June, I'm not going to be in phenomenal 10 K endurance shape in June. Right. I might be able to pull off a pretty good 3K or maybe even stretch myself out for 5K, but I bet you a lot of money I was in better 10K shape in January or February. And that's okay because I'm training for the 1500, but I couldn't have that necessary endurance unless I did that work early on to give me that higher capacity so that even if it comes down just a little bit, is still way more than I used to have. And the same goes for speed, right? I need to develop that high capacity of producing force, producing pure speed, so that, you know what, if it comes down a little bit during cross country, you know what, I'm doing enough to maintain it so that the second I switch, I flip that switch from maintenance to build, it's there, you know, and I can I can get on it. And I think this is where we just have to respect the limits of unenhanced uh, physiology like physiology that is really a product of the work and response to the work 
and training that you subject the organism, which is the athlete, to. And some people might say, well, but you can run a world-class 1500 or win a a world championship 1500 and the 10K in the same championship. And to that, I'll just simply say, that's fake tits. Like, that's really all that is. I mean, it's, it looks real. You saw it with your own eyes. You're made to believe this narrative. We want to believe that you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can be an amazing point guard and also be seven foot 10 and have the coordination that a six foot point guard has, but it's not, you know, uh, it's not authentic. It's, it comes with a lot of aid and enhancement and that's, you know, I think sometimes we just have to remember the bounds of human physiology, that there are limits to it. And when you see things like that, as we've been seeing a lot recently, um, and that, you know, are coming from camps that have now convicted or banned uh, drug cheat coaches, we have to understand that their only reason, you know, certain camps or athletes can do these spectacles in these environments and these large swings is because they do fundamentally have different physiology because of in performance enhancing aids that they're subject to. I mean, I hate to be, you know, Debbie Downer about it, but it's important to call out things that aren't necessary that are enhanced when you see them. Otherwise we get the wrong concept perception that we're capable of things as humans, that really we are not uh, without a significant degree of enhancement. I'm just, you know, sorry, got to call a spade a spade. No, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's important to point out, and that's why I love that Alan Webb story, because, like, it, it, it creates a false pretense, right? And it creates a false idea of what is possible for us to do. And as if we as coaches fall for that narrative, then all of a sudden we think it's possible to um, be in peak, you know, 800 meter shape and peak 10 K shape at the same time. Mm. And it's just not, (laughs) you can, you might be able to get close, right? If you're, if, if you're training and peak for you, it might be peak for you, but as far as like competing against Everyone who's at the highest level in your category, whether it's high school, college, professionally, masters, whatever, the people who are specializing are primary in developing their their ability physiologically, neurologically, et cetera, in that, you know, tight bandwidth. And we know these tight bandwidths exist. That's when you can take issue. But maybe the bandwidth isn't as tight. So maybe at the high school level, you're at a smaller high school level division. The competitive playing field is not that uh, robust and deep. Sure, you might be able to win the 400 up to the two mile at your state meet simply because the people, the others you're competing against might not be that apt. But when everyone's very, very, very apt (laughs) and you're kicking their butts like they're, you know, like they're running backwards. That's when the red flags have to go off. <laughs> yes. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> I mean, that's really what, what it comes down to. And so we're not, I'm not trying to say it's impossible. I'm saying, well, yeah, it's high school and college athletes, you know, and maybe certain other athletes in certain other divisions can do these things. And like, I mean, athletes I've worked with, they've been in the best shape of their life and ran PRs in every event, but it's not like, uh, when I was coaching Michaela Fricker and she could run too flat to a one 800 that she'd go out and then run sub four in the 15. Cause we didn't do any work to support that. She ran a four seventeen in the 15, which was good for her, 
but nothing to write home about at the professional level. Or Daniel Herrera, he could run like a 30-30-10K on the road being in sub-four-minute mile shape, but that doesn't really get you anything on the track. Uh, but it was a good 10K for Dan when he was in sub-four shape for the track. So again, it's just understanding where those bandwidths are and the tolerance is either wide or narrow depending on the competitive environment that you're preparing for. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is, you know, that's a good point to drive home on this as we talk about the myth of losing speed is that it's about knowing what athlete you're working with, knowing what event you're trying to develop it for, and then figuring out where that balance lies and how much you need to maintain not only the speed, but also the endurance and how much you need to build those capacities. And understanding that like, if you're losing speed, that might be a decision that you make, right? It, it might be a decision that says, you know what, maybe you made it during this COVID time. Maybe you said, you know what, we're not going to be competing for a year. This athlete to make them to take them to the next level needs a very, we'll say, traditional Lydiard-esque base of a lot of high-end aerobic type running, and like this is the time to do it. And you know what? His speed might suffer a little bit, even if you maintain it. But it, you're making that conscious choice to say, you know what? I'm going to build this back up at some point. And again, that that can be your if you think that's best and you have reasonings for it, then like, you know, try it. Who knows? <laughs> um, I'll give a, a quick example here. Uh, that's multifaceted that hopefully will drive this point home. Uh, when I was at Portland state years ago, I worked with a, a female athlete, Sarah Dean uh, was her, as her name was at the time. And she was a very interesting athlete. I inherited her uh, from an NAI program. She had transferred to Portland state, which is uh a mid-major division one, the big sky. And she was a really good 800 meter runner and 400 meter runner in high school. And then early in the NAI world, but she had a, a really interesting neurological disorder where her nerves would get pinched if her, if she strained too much and she'd tend to strain a lot when doing fast speed work. Right. So things would just get pinched and then uh, the nerve would kind of just shut off and she couldn't get a sensation in her leg in one of her legs. And it would just kind of become this gimpy thing. So here's an athlete I have that has before that disorder was a very, you know, speed for oriented athlete for middle distance and distance running. Um, but then I, we said, well, we can't do this work because this work causes this neurologic triggers this neurological disorder. That's one, frustrating, and two, can be painful and might have long-term systemic impact on your whole life. And I've always told her, I want you to be able to pick up your children and your grandchildren without pain. So even though we could have pushed the envelope and had her focus on being a, uh, you know, 800, 1500-meter type athlete, her senior year, we said, we're going to focus more on the 10. And did that mean that she did not PR and or run a school record at Portland State in the 15 and win the Big Sky Championship in the 15 outdoors. No, she did all, all those things. But again, the relative standard of uh, competitiveness was a lower threshold. She uh, ran, you know, 422 in the 15. And that looks like, oh, we should 
for a mid-major Division One 1500 meter rider at the time, we should focus on that. But because of the trigger of, of that neurological disorder, we didn't want to risk it. So this is what we did is we trained her to more towards the 10 while maintaining speed in more by feel, only going, always staying within like what she perceived as her 10%, uh, 10% within a, uh max intensity. So she'd never go beyond 90%. We used Carl Foster's rate of perceived exertion more as our guide. And, um, but we also did this low threshold, low motor unit endurance work to build this robust capacity for her. So a lot of mile repeats at 540 with 45 seconds rest, um, just to build that ability up. And, you know, she's ran for her pretty fast and for that level of competition in the 10. And then we went to altitude that year for the Big Sky Championship. And we decided, well, you're not going to run the 10, even though your head show is the best 10,000 meter runner in the conference. Why? We're running at 7,000 feet. We're coming from zero. The ask to run 10,000 meters at that um, level, at that elevation, and then go back the following week or two weeks to go run the um, regional championship 10K in Arkansas, you are going to, the exertion to do that will be so high was our bet that you would not be fully recovered by the time the uh, regionals came up. So we said, just run the 15 and we'll also try the five and we'll see how you feel. So she runs the 15, she wins the 15. She just, you know, wins on a 29 second last 200 because the goal is to minimize the rate of perceived exertion at altitude, but still be a team player and score points for the team. She gets in the five, it's going easy, but then she gets pushed you know, and, and then all of a sudden it kind of, she freaks out because her back gets a little bit jarred and she's very protective of that area. So we just pulled her from the five, right? Even though she could have probably easily gotten second or first or score more teams, the long-term goal of giving her a real shot of making nationals in the 10, you know, we didn't want to compromise or sacrifice. And everyone was on the same page. Myself, Sarah, the head coach, we all understood this. You know, long story short, it didn't work out in the end. She, with a mile to go, again, got pushed in the back uh, in the regional 10K in Arkansas and had to kind of like one leg gimp home, you know, to like 20th or whatever. But what colored our decision making throughout the entire duration of that year was this ability and background Sarah had, the neurological disorder and the triggers that aggravated it and staying away as far away or creating a buffer to safeguard against uh, inadvertently causing those triggers to happen. And then two, just communication and being on the same page and me as a coach deciding what can we do that will help create the most re resilient and competitive organism in at the competitive level she's playing at and where she wants to try to go towards. And that's where all this understanding really uh, benefited not only me and the ability to guide that season and she had a lot of like successes. You can look back now, so fond memory, school records, and you know several events, and winning a, a conference title, and all those fun little rites of passages and uh, things that happened. But also, too, we got her through it. Most importantly, without any big catastrophic injury or neurological damage or disorder, and yet maintained the integrity of her competitiveness. So that's the whole point of all this, right? She didn't lose speed by doing this 10k work. If anything, you can say she was the most resilient and competitive she was 
in that tight threshold of 1500 to 10 K, but she never, she ran one eight, she ran two Oh nine. And it was like, okay, that's good. We're not going to even like get greedy here. <laughs> We're going to call it good. You know, never ran a four, four by four leg. Like we just didn't even go there because of her inherited inherited limit limitations. So that's the whole purpose of understanding all that versus these. I feel like Steve, we often have these very theoretical uh, archetype athletes where we're like, Oh, well for this type of athlete, 800 meter athlete or this type of athlete or this, we, we tend to create this. Um, I don't want to say this model, but we, we, well, we do create this model, but then we try to fit the athlete to the model rather than take the model and use it as a map for that individual and of one athlete. Yeah. I think that that kind of summarizes up the whole problem is that we, we love thinking in these models and systems and then just shoving our athletes into them. But the reality is every single person you get like comes with different attributes, different skills and all that stuff. And it's our job to, like create and develop our model around that athlete. And specifically in terms of when it comes to this like speed, losing speed idea, I think it applies even more so in the sense that, you know, like how much does the athlete need to do to maintain this capacity? You know, I, it, and it's funny if we took this in the weight room, athletes would understand and coaches would understand, you know, especially distance coaches. For example, I've had some middle distance athletes where literally if they just touched a weight, like Mm. in their upper body, they'd bulk up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I have others who could, you know, if they wanted to do curls and bench press four days a week for months on end and never, never gain a, a shred of, of, of muscle or well, we'll say weight, right? Or of mass, right? They won't put in on any mass. Mm-hmm. And there's variation in that. And there's variation based on how they're training outside and they're running and their individual genetics and all that good stuff. But like we understand as coaches and, you know, modify to that. I had one 800 athlete who like if he lifted too much, his upper body would put on a lot of mass which what wasn't functional for the uh, the aspect of running so we did different different things instead of that because like he only need a little bit to maintain that quality that he needed for from a performance standpoint so i think the same applies to sprinting in the sense that you just got to know of how much does he need he or she need to maintain it how much does he or she need to build it how much does endurance work uh, negate it or dampen it? And like that model that you build around that determines like how much and what type of work you need to do. Yeah. And the order of operations. I mean, it's, it's very complex. So it's tough for us to grasp because again, it's not reductionist and straightforward and pure and simple, but it's really important to understand this complexity. And I think that's where we want to, you know, help everyone with these podcasts and, you know, talking about these experiences we've had, as well as also the resources we're creating and continuing to update on the Academy of Scholarship of High Performance West. You know, these aren't, sh- these aren't sh- shameless or selfish plugs. 
you know, completely, they're actually more altruistic because these are tough, 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 tough questions and um, tough, tough things to grasp and understand. And sometimes when we talk to certain coaches and they can be really renowned or respected coaches, they come to the table um, with their biases, right? And because this worked for X athlete or that athlete, they tend to say, okay, that's the script. And I'm just going to stick to that script. But like, you know, Steve, you are a scientist, right? And the thing about science is you have to be constantly like open-minded, willing to test new things and also live with a great deal of humility. Because often what you think at one point as right later when you get a new understanding or degree of experience or knowledge is then wrong. Look, I'm going to go back. I'm going to make a bold prediction that 40 years from now, when we're old and retired and probably still coaching random people, we're going to go back and somehow figure out how to listen to these things that we used to call podcasts. And we're going to listen to some of these things. And some of it is going to be very, very wrong. Okay. But, mm-hmm. And that's okay. Because <laughs> this is a process of figuring it out. And we're not trying to be wrong right now, but we're going to continually grow and grow and grow. And this isn't politics where it is bad to change your mind. This is real life where it is good to change the mind, your mind if the evidence demands it. And that's what, that's what we're after on this exploration is, does the evidence demand it? Not only the scientific evidence, but John and I are big on the historical evidence of, you know what? We've got this idea or this coach who, who seems to have a lot of success is spouting, you know, this is the key. Well, you know what? I wonder if someone's done that before. Well, if you look back in history, chances are someone's done that before. And that doesn't give you the definitive answer, but it gives you a guide. It gives you some understanding. And that's why, you know, in all these scholar things that we do, man, we go deep. <laughs> man, we go back in the yeah. in the oh, yeah. history books. And we're not tooting our own horn or whatever. It's just that's what John and I like to do. Um, yeah. We're both readers and explorers on this stuff. So, we're trying to put it out there so that, you know, hopefully you guys are better informed than us. And then, you know, the younger generation when we're old and retired is making us look foolish or mm. hopefully like people have built on Lydiard and others in Igloy and whoever and Sir Sarity and all those guys stample, like hopefully our little contribution, you know, changes or like gives a new path forward for people to do it better. Yeah. The experimental rigor is also the key here, right? I think, you know, this process, we want the recipe because recipes seem easy, uh, simple. Someone already figured out all I got to do is just plug and chug, do the work and you'll get this um, result guaranteed. And that's not how it works with human organisms, unfortunately, because again, we're complex adaptive systems. There's a lot going on that we know about, but there's also a lot more going on that we don't yet have a firm grasp on or just are starting to get clarity on in this day and age. And, you know, I'll end with this, like, we also have to have this high degree of humility because what's new to us might actually be old. And Vern Gambetta is a really good example of this. He's been around a long time. These other, you know, coaches, uh, who have been around for longer than Steve and I have been alive personally, who have been working in the field of 60, 70, 50 years. 
uh, have seen a lot and anything that's newly discovered, you, you, I always cross-reference with them. And, you know, Vern's there is talking about how in strength and conditioning world right now, isometrics are the big new fad. And he's like, though isometric training is something that was known and discovered and utilized in the sixties. There's actually a booklet uh, by the San Diego chargers, uh, strength and conditioning coach at that time, which is purports and uh, demonstrates the the use of isometrics to help build this kind of like robust strength or this foundational strength, right? So back in the 60s, isometrics was very much in vogue in strength and conditioning world and then fell out of vogue for a variety of reasons. And now it's becoming in vogue again in the late uh, or early 2020s, right? So that degree of humility coupled with, you know, radical open-mindedness coupled with a passion for experimental rigor. Um, I mean, that's the, I think, fundamental qualities that make a good scientist and a good coach. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Vern and others have laid the foundation and also have a deep knowledge of history, and those are the ones we're trying to emulate. So, um, yeah, without further ado, we'll leave that for you guys to uh, check out the Scholar Program again. Uh, any links on books or topics or other podcasts we discussed will be in the show notes. So check those out on Science of Running and continue to reach out, review, whatever have you, um, so that you know we know if we're giving you guys what you want to hear and if we're helping or if we're not, how we can uh, how we can do so. So until next time. Thanks a lot for listening and happy coaching.